Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been at Wildwood this summer, you know that we have been walking through a series that we have called True Grace, Having the Grit to Stand in hostile territory. And we began this series back at the beginning of June, and it's taking us all the way through the book of First Peter. And the book of First Peter, we've seen, is a really wonderful letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the first century to encourage them as they were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. They were living in a hostile territory, and he wrote to them to encourage them that they could find grace from God that would enable them to stand in the midst of this difficult world. Um, and Peter kind of summarized his intent of that letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, something we've seen every week, when he summarized it by saying, this is the true grace of God, referring to everything he had just written. This is the true grace of God that you would stand firm in it. And so as believers in Christ today that gather some 2,000 years after this letter was written, we still can, can find grace from God today that enables us to stand in an otherwise hostile world. Isn't that great news? Uh, we're going to look at that today in kind of the eighth part of this series as we get to the end of 1 Peter chapter 4. But before we do that, I want to share with you a little of my own personal experience um, of a time where I have experienced persecution um, and, you know, you might wonder where that is or what it was like, and really there's, there's parts of this story that will be familiar to you because, yes, it did occur in a faraway land, um, and it did occur at the hands of some strange and different people, um, and it even occurred near a coliseum. Um, but, uh, of course, I'm talking about attendance at the OU Texas game. Now, here's the deal. There are, there's no doubt there are some Texas fans here. I am so sorry. We will pray for you. No, uh, here, here's, here's the deal. Um, we're so glad that you're here. But I'm going to tell this story from my perspective, right? Uh, and my perspective is that of an OU fan. When I went to this game, I did not wear burnt orange. I've been four different times in my life. I've really seen it all at the OU Texas game. In four trips to Dallas, we've seen a win. We've seen two losses and even seen a tie. But in every instance of going, I never wore burnt orange. I always wore crimson and cream. And because of that, as I would show up at this game, it wasn't a home game. It wasn't an environment where everybody was wearing my colors. It was an environment where 40 to 45,000 people were wearing a different color than I had on my back. And even though I never met them, even though I had no personal relationship with them, they were making judgment upon me, and they were letting me know it. They were, they were hollering out insults and, and, and all kinds of things headed in my direction, not because they knew me, not because of anything I'd done, but because of whose jersey I was wearing. Has anybody ever had this experience before at the OU Texas game? At least someone out there nod or wave at me or say, okay, thank you, at least the base family knows what I'm talking about. Um, as K-State fans transplanted in Norman, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But, but many times at, the, at that game, we're, we're judged on the basis of the jersey that we wear. And we can experience some difficulty. Now, it's all good fun at the OU Texas game, but it becomes a little more challenging in real life when we are, are truly judged with harsh consequences based on whose jersey we wear. 
You know, for any who have come into a relationship with Christ, we wear on our bodies the colors of Christ. We're on his team. We are identified by him. And because of those colors that we wear, people that have never met us, people that don't know us, people that might not have a conversation with us, might have a tendency to want to judge us. Now, this might not be your experience in Norman, Oklahoma. Maybe it is, but certainly it's the experience of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. If you live in Iraq today and you are a follower of Christ, if you wear on your bodies the colors of Christ, there are those that want to wipe you off of the planet merely because of the color that you wear. Um, Persecution is real, and it's in existence today. Only one time in my life have I really experienced anything quite like that. We were in the south of France on a mission trip. Some of you were there. Some of you helped support us as we went. Um, I was with a group of people that were surrounded by an angry group hurling insults and languages we didn't speak. One of my friends standing beside me was punched in the face and the materials that we were carrying thrown into the streets as we experienced a rejection, not because they knew us, but because of the color of the jersey that we were wearing because of our identification with Christ. Some of you have stories that you could tell, family members that have rejected you in some way, promotions you believe were passed over for you because of your faith in Christ, Um, relationships that have gone south in whatever way. there's, There's persecution that exists. Now, for the most part, Christians in America have played home games for the last few hundred years, right? And so because of that, our experience has been maybe smaller. But as our world is beginning to shift and as the world begins to change, we're, we're nearing that point where like the OU-Texas game, it's 45,000, 45,000, it's 50-50, it's more of a neutral field. There are, will be increasing amounts of opposition to believers in Christ, not because they know us, but because of the color that we wear. And maybe one day, If there's not a change in in culture, we'll find ourselves in such the minority that persecution will be the norm even in our country. Now, it's to people who live in such hostile worlds that the book of 1 Peter is written. And it's to those of us who live in this hostile world that 1 Peter chapter 4 is penned by Peter to help encourage us to know the kind of grace that is available to us as we experience persecution from our faith. And today we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And in those verses, I I think we'll see at least a couple of things that will be encouraging to us as far as how to respond, how to react, how to live, how to have grace to stand in in hostile territory. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. We're going to read these verses, and then I'm going to go back and unpack them in a couple of movements for us today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 begins this way. Peter writes and says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, these seven verses have some encouragement for us today as we live in a a hostile territory, and we're going to see two things today. The first thing we're going to see is this. We need to remember whose we are. Remember whose we are. We see that in the first six verses of this section. It begins right there in verse 12. Peter writes and says that he's writing to the beloved. This is an indication that he's writing to people who have a relationship with Christ. He's writing to encourage Christians here. That's a a title that he would give to them, ones who are loved by God. He said, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In two instances, he says, don't be surprised, don't find it strange when you are persecuted because of your faith in Christ. That's what he's saying. Don't be surprised. Don't find it strange. And why is that? Well, it's because when we remember whose we are, we remember that we're connected to Jesus Christ. And what did the world do with Christ? Jesus was arrested on some trumped-up charges. Jesus was, was ushered forth to the cross where he was nailed there and died. He was insulted. He was spit upon. He was, he was rejected. If the world treats Jesus that way, it It really should come as no surprise to his followers if some also reject us just as they rejected him. He writes and says, don't consider it strange. Don't be surprised if you're treated like Christ was when you're wearing his colors. He says that the thing that is going to happen is going to be some kind of a fiery trial. I think it's an interesting phrase there, a fiery trial. I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One reason why I think it's interesting is because of the historical context of this letter. We don't know exactly when this letter was written, but most would date it somewhere in the first half of the 60s A.D., 63, 64, 65, somewhere in there A.D. And historically, an interesting thing had begun to happen in the Roman Empire in that era. See, the Roman Empire in that era was led by a very evil man named Nero. Nero was the the emperor. He was the Caesar. He was the one who was directing traffic over the Roman Empire at that time. And, And Nero was not very well liked by the Roman citizens, especially those that lived in the city of Rome. And it's for good reason why they didn't like him. He had such a grand vision of recreating Rome in his own image that what What Nero wanted to do was he he wanted to tear down the buildings in Rome and build them back up newer and better. He wanted to to recreate the city in his own image. Now, that might sound decent to somebody who lived out of town, but can you imagine if you lived in a building that he wanted to claim as his own, a building that he wanted to tear down to the studs and start over? People in Rome were at risk of being homeless. They were at risk of being kicked out because of Nero's vision, but the people resisted. Nero in this charge. And because they resisted, Nero had to figure out a way to leverage the change he wanted to see happen. So 
Most historians believe in 64 AD it was Nero himself who set the city of Rome on fire. Roman soldiers told to stand down, to not fight the flames, because the city was intended to burn to the ground so that Nero could rebuild it from the ashes. Now, that would not make Nero any more popular with the people, and so he needed some kind of a cover story to his atrocities. The cover story that Nero came up with was, he said, you know what, let's blame somebody that's already kind of a whipping boy in our region. Let's blame those pesky Christians for the burning of the city of Rome, something that no honest historian has looked at and said was a reasonable thing to consider, but Nero penned the burning of Rome on Christians. And so that ushered in a season in 64 AD of empire-wide persecution of believers. Nero went around gathering up Christians wherever he could find them, and he, he, he would bring them back, and in some he would... He would light on fire on stakes in his garden so that his evening parties could have light. It's the kind of guy that Nero was. Others he would tie up inside of animal skins and, and toss to wild animals for the sporting audience that would watch. The kind of guy Nero was. This is the, the fiery ordeal, the fiery trial that had begun for the church in 64 AD. It began with a fire in the city of Rome. Now, we don't know if Peter knew about that fire, and this letter was written right after that fire or in the days that followed, and in which case, fiery ordeal is, is, a, is a, a wonderful allusion to what was happening. We don't know if that's the case, or if this reference to the fiery trial was merely God through the work of His Holy Spirit inspiring Peter to write using that terminology so that it would have resonance around the empire as the letter was read years later. We don't know for sure. Um, But either way, it's an interesting historical point that he uses a fiery ordeal here, kind of persecution that the first century church was experiencing. I think it's also interesting, though, not just historically, but the, the reference to a fiery trial is also interesting biblically. Because in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, fire was a purifying thing. You would put metal in a fire to to drain off the extras so that what would be left was something pure. And I think that is part of what Peter had in mind because he talks about this fiery ordeal testing us or revealing Christians for who they really are. You know, it might be easy for believers in Christ to, to say that they're believers in Christ when things are good, but... In the midst of this kind of opposition, you would reveal the genuine articles, the real Christians, the ones who followed Christ by their willingness to stand with him even in the face of Nero's fires. Either way, Peter writes and says that we're not to be surprised when these fiery trials come. Why? Because we remember whose we are, whose colors we wear. Verse 13 though, goes further and says, not only are we to to remember why opposition exists, but we're also to rejoice in the midst of this kind of opposition, which is something totally counterintuitive to to our our existence, for us to think that, that we could rejoice in the midst of such things. But that's exactly what Peter says. He says, rejoice. Why? He says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Those two verses, we see two different reasons why believers can rejoice in the midst of persecution. The first is this. If you're persecuted for the name of Christ, if you're persecuted because of the color of the uniform that you're wearing, you're, you're identified with him, if you're persecuted because of those things, if you suffer with Christ, he says in verse 13, we also should have an expectation that we will share with Jesus in his glorification. See, if, if our identification with Christ is a reason for our difficult circumstances today, then we should be hopeful because we're identified with Jesus not just temporarily, but eternally. And Jesus, who experienced suffering in a brief time in his earthly life, now sits exalted above all, and he's invited us to be with him. Believers can rejoice in the midst of persecution because it's a reminder for us of what our future holds if we know Christ. We're encouraged to rejoice because of the condition of Christ today. Verse 14, though, goes and gives a second reason why we should rejoice in the midst of persecution. And that second reason is because God can bless us in the midst of it. Peter writes here as a a good Jewish guy, and he says that the blessing that God gives in the midst of persecution and suffering is like the Shekinah glory of God coming and, and resting with his people. The Jews had this in their history, whether it was the glory of God residing in the temple over the Ark of the Covenant, whether it was the glory of God like a a fire leading the the nation out of the Exodus, whether it was the glory of God shining around Moses' face as he came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. There are many instances of God's glory resting on his people. And what Peter writes to say is that when we are persecuted because of our faith in Christ, God shows up in a special way. Every believer has the Spirit of God residing within us, but believers under persecution receive a a special blessing from God in that moment. And Peter said this not as some theory, not as as something that he hoped was true, but he said this as, as someone who had seen it play out in history. See, Peter would have been aware, he would have seen Stephen be stoned for his faith, as Bruce taught us in the Seed series earlier in the spring. He would have seen Stephen stoned for his faith. And as Stephen was, was stoned, he looked into heaven and he, and he saw Jesus standing there waiting to receive him. That was the kind of blessing that God offered to those who were persecuted for their faith. Peter himself wasn't just familiar with this, not just with his friends, but with himself. Peter was, was beaten. Peter was arrested. Peter was imprisoned because of his faith in Christ. And yet he could walk out of those prison days rejoicing with his fellow believers. Why? Because God showed up in a special way. God encouraged his heart. Folks, we have brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted around the world. God is blessing them with his presence right now in ways that you and I don't understand, but in ways that that he can deliver as they share in the sufferings of Christ because of whose they are, because of the colors that they wear. See, we can rejoice in the midst of persecution. We can rejoice because of of Jesus and what he has done and the hope of being with him forever, and we can rejoice because of the blessings that God provides in the moment. Verse 15 goes a little further, and it's like Peter throws this little comment in. He does this several times throughout the letter. It's like this little disclaimer. It's the fine print. He says it several times. He wants them to know that not all of the difficulties they experience in life are tied to their connection to Christ. 
In other words, some of the consequences they were experiencing in life, some of the difficulty they were experiencing were because of their own dumb decisions. Um, And and Peter wanted to remind them of that, right? Uh, He says, hey, I'm not talking about the kind of suffering you have if you murder somebody or if you steal from somebody or if you're an evildoer or a meddler, verse 15. Because I'm not talking about general consequences in life or, or you aggravating those around you because of your own sin. But he says there's a special blessing that comes when we are persecuted merely because of the colors that we're wearing, merely because of our identification with Christ. We're to remember whose we are and we're to rejoice in the midst of whatever consequence comes as a result. Peter gives some motivations in verses 16 and following for why we should be motivated to keep the colors of Christ about us and to rejoice. The first one he says in verse 16, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I think this is one of these beautiful, tender comments from Peter. Was there ever a time that Peter was ashamed of the name of Christ? Peter was famous for a moment where he was ashamed at the name of Christ. When Jesus was arrested, Peter denied him how many times? Three times. You know what I think this is? I think this is a pastoral comment from Peter. I think what Peter is saying, he's like, look, guys, I know what it's like to be right under the gun because of our faith in Christ. And you'll be tempted to shy away and to be ashamed of Jesus in that moment. But Peter, it's like he leans in and he says, you don't want to go there. Peter's like, I've been there. I know what it feels like to hear the rooster crow three times. It's not worth it. Stay with Christ. Glorify God in that moment. One of the motivations. Don't give in in that moment. Second motivation, though, he mentions is in verse 17 and 18. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, those verses might seem a little hard for us to understand, but let me try to explain to the best of my understanding what they mean. I think what, what Peter was, was saying there is he was saying that right now in this life, in this world, there is some judgment that is coming upon Christians, and it's judgment from the world to Christians that God is allowing. And temporarily, we experience difficulties in this life but eternally, we are rewarded by God. The judgment is beginning in this life, but in the long run, it's way better for us. Peter uses a little bit of, of logic, a little bit of reasoning. He says, if that's the case for us, remember how bad it is in the converse. That right now, the world might be escaping some judgment. Things might be working out for them. They might look like those who have rejected the gospel are winning now, but in eternity, there is judgment from God to come. Peter's encouraging them to have an eternal perspective as a motivation, to look beyond the moment, to not get captured in the, in the day-to-day, but to take the whole picture into account and to look into eternity and realize that what is best for us is to trust Christ now, even if it's difficult for a moment because it is eternally rewarded. See, we need to remember that because you, you are here today and you're in a, re- a relationship with Christ or pursuing that or at least curious about Jesus, 
because of, of some other reason, probably. There, there was something that, that began in you. I'll tell you a little bit of a story about me. I, just yesterday, I went up to Bartlesville, where I'm from, and I, I played golf with the guy that God used to lead me into a relationship with Christ. You know why I initially started hanging out with him? Because I, I was convinced of the gospel? No. I initially started hanging out with him because he was better at golf than I was. And I wanted him to be a friend long enough that I could see him lose to me. Um, I'm a little competitive, right? So that, that was how the relationship began. Was It began on the golf course. It began uh, with, with, with fun. And you know what? I've experienced in my Christian life a number of, of blessings that, that began that way. Friends that began because we have a common interest in the thunder. Friends that began because we have a, a common experience in life or, or we have some other things in common and we gather together in, in churches and we invite our friends to come. And you might be here today and you might be here because you have a, a common friend or something like that. And you might think that the whole hope of Christianity is just to make your life a little better, a little more full, a few more friends. You know what? Christianity is those things. It, it does give us direction on the way that God has intended us to live, and it, and it does place us in the context of friendships that can be a blessing to us. But if, if our value of Christianity is only viewed in this life, we've got way too narrow a perspective that could be chipped away when we experience difficulty because of our faith. See, what Peter is, is saying, what he's reminding us of, is that we are professing faith in Christ, not just for this moment, but for eternity. And so because of that, I want to challenge you to do something that you may have done in the past, but I want to challenge you to do this today. As you remember whose you are, I want to challenge you to do this. I want you to challenge you to predetermine today to follow Christ no matter what. Predetermined today. Don't, don't just follow Christ because it's convenient. Don't just follow Christ because you think it'll make your life a little better or a little more full on this side of the day. Because you might experience some difficulty down the road where believing in Christ might lead to the loss of a relationship or the passing over of the promotion or, or even worse. What it means to follow Christ is it means to look on our body and remember our identity, remember the colors that we wear. And on the basis of that identity, we're going to predetermine to follow Christ no matter what. I think that's what Peter is encouraging us to do here. And we do that based on this perspective of eternity, and we do that based on God's willingness and ability to bless us in the meantime. See, we need to remember whose we are. Second thing we see in this passage, though, is that we are to rest in Him. We're to rest in Him. Verse 19 is, is, a, is a wonderful verse. Pastor Bruce, as he's given us health updates about his battle with the recurrence of prostate cancer, has concluded many of them with, with this verse as the reference. Um, it's a wonderful passage. It's a wonderful verse, something to commit to memory because it, it points to a hope that we have in the midst of a hostile world. It's a reminder that we can rest in Him. Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. The key word to understanding this verse, I think, is the word entrust. It's a banking word. Uh, you think about it this way. Um, at different times and different seasons, 
the markets are, are bare and bull. I'm not a stock investor, so I'm not going to try to give you an, a lesson on what those things mean, but a bear market, a bull market can create all kinds of volatility, right? The, 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 everything's going up, everything's going down. That's the world in which we live. Things are constantly up and down, causing us to go into panic, making us want to, to, to unload uh, our, our life in, in one direction or another just to provide some kind of relief to our souls. That's the world in which we live, a world that is constantly changing, a world that is always up and down. And we, we, we live in, in, the, in the state of Oklahoma. The price of oil is always going up and down, and, and, it, and it sets people into to frenzies when it does, right? Because it impacts our economy in so many ways. Back in, in, the, in, the, in the 90s, early 2000s, you might have had that Enron stock that looked great for a little while, right? But then suddenly some things happen and it put you into a frenzy to get rid of it and move your funds from something that was very unstable into something that is very stable. You wanted to entrust your resources there. I think what Peter is writing to say is he says, in this hostile world, in this volatile world, where it's a bull and a bear market around us, where everything is changing, put your soul and trust it, your very life, in the hands of one who can handle it, in something stable. And and who we are to entrust our souls to in this hostile environment, he says, is our faithful creator. Now, that's a unique phrasing. Nowhere else in the New Testament are those two words, faithful creator, put together. Why would Peter reference those? Why not just say, entrust your soul to Jesus or entrust your soul to your heavenly Father? Why does he say faithful creator? I think part of the, the, the insight into why he did that is by looking back at Acts chapter 4 and verse 24. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles were arrested. They were being persecuted because of their faith. And as they are leaving the temple, after the, their persecution, they turn to each other and they begin praising God and, and they pray. And who do they pray to? They pray to the God of all creation. Why is that? Because it sure looked like creation was against them. But they were remembering who sat on top of that. And in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a world that seems against us, we entrust our soul to the God who sits over and above the world, our faithful creator who loves us and desires to protect us, to add stability to us today. I don't know what is causing you to be anxious, but my guess is that everybody in here has got something that is causing you to be anxious. You might be like, thank you for reminding me. I was calm for a moment, Um, but now you've brought that up and now I can't get it out of my brain. And that's just proof of what I'm saying is true. There are things for me that when when, when everything gets calm, when everything gets quiet, my, my brain will want to go to certain topics that will make me anxious. What is it that makes you anxious? Is it failure in the past? Is it fear of the future? Is it something in your present? What Peter writes to tell us is that there is a hope that is available to all people, and that is in the midst of this bull and bear market that wants us to sell off or buy whatever the world is offering. There is a a bank, a trusted place, a safe location where we can entrust our souls, and that is with our faithful Creator who demonstrated his love for us when he sent his son Jesus into the world 
to live a perfect life and then die on the cross for our sins, taking our unrighteous acts while giving us his perfection, while giving us his righteousness so that in God's eyes we would be seemed as forgiven and clean and cleansed so that we would have an opportunity to be with God, not just for a moment, but we would be with him in eternity. You see, the God that loves us that much just says, hey, I'm always open. Deposit your soul with me. And if we do, Philippians chapter 4 tells us that the anxiousness we feel can be replaced by the peace of God that passes all understanding. See, we need to remember whose we are. We need to rest 